Language Talk is a series of podcasts of interest to world language educators across the nation seeking information about issues relevant to teaching and learning of world languages. Each month, we'll be talking to educators, researchers, or advocates for world language learning. Language Talk is a partnership between the Kentucky World Language Association Board and the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Kentucky, designed to showcase the importance of global citizenship. Welcome to Language Talk KWA. This is your host, Laura Rocha Youngworth, and today's topic is Struggling Learners and Literacy. Joining me as co-host is our producer, Jean-Marie Ruyer-Willoughby. Welcome, Jean-Marie. Thanks, Laura. More than ever before, today's educational system sets the expectation that every child can learn and that learning goals should be set at a high level. As a result, phrases such as gap or novice reduction and meeting the needs of struggling learners are the focus of schools and districts across each state. But for educators, helping students reach their full potential can be challenging and quick fixes or best practices don't seem to work for every child all the time. Now, take this scenario and apply it to world language education. Traditionally, many schools viewed the learning of languages as an advanced skill and minimum requirements were established to, I don't want to say it, but weed out students who were perceived as lacking the potential to be successful. Fortunately, this perception is slowly crumbling and, in its place, the realization that bilingualism can be a key component of student success in the global society outside our school's walls. The result, students of all backgrounds and levels of educational success are enrolling in world language classes. Consequently, language educators are at times struggling. How do they adapt to an ever-increasing diverse group of learners? Joining us today is Dr. Francis Bailey, Associate Professor at the University of Kentucky in the Department of Modern and Classical Languages, Literatures, and Cultures, and also Director of the Teaching English as a Second Language Program, or TESOL program. Welcome, Francis. Thank you. Oh, nice to be here, Laura. Well, Jean thank Marie. you. It's a rainy day, but we're glad you made it here. Um, I just want to start off with first, since you do work with TESOL, what connection does ESL have with struggling learners? Where do they fit into that? Well, um, ESL students are uh, often struggling. Um, they come into our system without full command of English, which is essential for their advancement in uh, academic work. And so we're often uh, considered a kind of remedial program. Um, we, uh, for example, in the high school level, oftentimes ESL classes are not credited so that they're, um, they don't move students toward uh, graduation. Um, and yes, ESL students are often struggling. And uh, if you look at it from a test point of view, they often fail to meet uh, state standards on uh, high-risk high tests which, of course, hurts their ability to uh, graduate and uh, go on to college. Right. Okay. And just to point out the obvious to our listeners, um, I had the pleasure of taking an ESL course many years ago at UK. I was thinking of doing an endorsement. And it was one of the two methods courses. I think I hopped in the spring one instead of taking the first one first. And, you know, it didn't take long to realize it was the exact same stuff I had learned as a world language educator. Same methods, same theories, and I know you're probably going, duh, but for me it was like, oh, 
It's the same strategies you use that we use with our world language learners, you, lo- you use with ESL learners. So I think, Jean Marie, you've pointed out in a past podcast that um, we can be a really good resource. And when I say we, world language educators, can be a great resource for our ESL students in the school and guiding the teachers and principals and students in their learning. So yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, the, um, I've often uh, prepared novice teachers who are both interested in foreign language and ESL and or someone who's uh, trained as a foreign language teacher who now wants to uh, add on ESL and the skills and knowledge base are very compatible. Good, good. So keep that in mind, listeners. So let's get into the book you wrote with Pransky, Teaching with Memory in Mind, A Teacher's Guide to Memory and Learning. And the focus of this book is taking the emerging knowledge of the human brain and memory systems to better classroom instruction and student learning, which I think that's really fascinating. And what got you interested in this topic initially? Well, um, I think there's been a tremendous amount of uh, research done on human cognition, and I didn't see a lot of that being converted over to forms that teachers could access that directly addressed um, practical issues in classroom instruction. And so I teamed up with a longtime classroom instructor and ESL teacher, uh, Ken Pransky, and uh, we set out to write a book that would really focus in on um, reasons that students struggle and uh, academically and then uh, what teachers can do about it and our the foundation for this is um, a look at human memory and its relationship to learning well when you shared a chapter of it with me and, and I mentioned this to you before the podcast I got really excited because there's always well not always I shouldn't say that there's a lack of uh, resources for teachers that actually talk about the implications for the classroom and as you pointed out what what percentage of this book does that right so we designed it around a 60 40 split so 60 percent of it has to be practical direct application to classroom teaching and learning and then 40 percent is the foundational knowledge around memory that kind of undergirds those uh teaching practices. I love it because so often you'll read, you'll see theories that are great and you just wish someone had helped you transfer that knowledge and take it to the classroom. So your book really does that. Yes. So great. So what role does memory play in learning and how important is it for teachers to understand how memory works? Well, I've organized uh, my teaching English as a second language program around a concept of um, teacher as learning specialists. And by that, I mean that we really want to prepare teachers who are uh, able to conduct a learner-centered classroom. But one of the weaknesses, I think, of many teacher ed programs is teachers really don't have much background on learning. Hmm. And uh, I agree. Uh, yeah. I agree to that. So they are often well-prepared in teaching methods. They're often well-prepared in their content area. Uh, could be Spanish or it could be math. Um, but they know less about how the brain functions and um, how uh, learning is part of a community or a, a kind of a social perspective on learning. So we, I think both parts are um, extremely important. So uh, the book really kind of uh, is organized around this idea that if we can help teachers better understand the uh, learning challenges at the cognitive level um, by looking at our memory systems, they'll 
be able to, they'll be more flexible teachers, they'll have greater insight into the challenges their students are facing, uh, and they can use that information when they're planning lessons, mm -hmm. when they're interacting with students, and when they're assessing learning. I love that. And um, I know, Jean Marie, we've talked about this some. When I talk to you about things, and you always refer to UK's mission, you always refer back to, what do you always say, flagship and land grant and, you know. And I think sometimes schools lose sight of the big foundational theories that should influence all the decisions they're making. And they get down to the micro level maybe too often. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm hearing you say is really what you're focusing on memory and learning, that should be a foundation for a school. So all decisions can be made through right. this knowledge. Right. And I think um, learning is uh, the critical focus. Um, and I think it's one of the things that separates an untrained teacher from a trained teacher is someone who has insights into how students learn. And then, of course, the pedagogical moves we make to uh, scaffold that, that learning, to support that learning. And I always tell my students only half jokingly that <laughs> um, you know, don't give up on the, on the bottom half of your class. They're the ones that pay the bills. If everybody was oh, a genius, geez. we'd be all the way out of work. They, don't, they wouldn't need many teachers. But really, so our work is really to focus on students who don't get it instantly, who, are, who don't find this an effortless process, who aren't well prepared by their culture and families to succeed in schools. Just the opposite. We're looking at, uh, at work that focuses on students who are struggling, who don't find it easy, and need that extra support to be successful. Right. And before the GT folks call, um, just want to point out those students need to grow too. But you're right. <laughs> the struggling students are usually, it's, I don't want to say it's easier when you have students who are getting it and can excel quickly. Um, a lot of teachers don't struggle with that. It's, that's almost like the candy on the. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we had in mind when we were first preparing yeah. for this job. Is right. That everyone would be enthusiastic. Everyone was super motivated and they're all geniuses. Right. Well, let's get into a really important chapter of your book, and it's chapter three. And you make some very interesting points regarding memory and connecting that to instructional practices, like you said. But your first point regarding memory is that it's socially and culturally constructed. Can you explain what you mean by this? Sure. Um, normally when we think about memory, we think about this sort of hard drive biological system operating on a wetware uh, program. But uh, there's another component to it, which is that we're also biologically designed to be cultural. And so our brain is designed to um, uh, capture, represent the kind of interactional patterns they see in, in they, the students in, interact with in their community and in their families. So. When we say memory is socially and culturally constructed, we mean that we interpret reality based upon information stored in long-term memory, and that culture helps us shape uh, uh, everyday cognition. So we're not just talking about fancy uh, high-level math or science. No, we're talking about just everyday activity. Uh, culture is shaping the way our brain is, is uh, put together. And this includes things like uh, categorization, reasoning, uh, ability to compare and contrast, and what you're aware of. Hmm. Wow. And then you mentioned there's a thing called cultural disruption. So what is that? Cultural disruption is a term 
um, that we took from um, an, an Israeli educator, uh, Furistein, and we changed the term slightly to make it more compatible with the U.S. educational system. But what we what we're talking about there is uh, children who have suffered serious interruption in the typical child rearing and socialization uh, activities of their culture. You know, Feuerstein uh, first started this work after World War II when many uh, children were uh, immigrating to Israel. Many of them ha were uh, traumatized by war, had been in uh, 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 concentration camps, had been hidden in cellars, uh, kept away from society. And so they did not get the full uh, culture that they would normally have been exposed to. And so he noticed that they were highly dysfunctional, and that's why they came to him as an educational psychologist. But what he, he didn't see them as, um, as damaged or disabled. He saw them as lacking socialization. And so he began to put together an educational program that would begin to address some of those issues. Hmm. So what would a teacher, and those are pretty extreme cultural disruptions. Yes. But so, I, I want to say one thing about that. They, uh -huh. Yes, so the roots of this started uh, with Feuerstein's experience with those kind of children, but he's expanded over time. It, many things can disrupt uh, a child's uh, child-rearing socialization, and certainly war is uh, a traumatic one, but also um, being ill can be a disruption. You may mm -hmm. spend, you know, years of your life bedfast or uh, in a hospital, um, you may have some kind of economic deprivation where you're very, very limited in what, who you're able to interact with, what kind of technologies have available, literacy, etc. So there's many routes to um, this kind of cultural disruption. It's not just uh, affecting immigrants. It can be any social economic class can have children who are culturally disrupted. I'm wondering personally whether uh, sitting a child for hours in front of a TV from yeah. the ages of uh, one to six might not be considered a cultural disruption, and I know many teachers think so. So there's many routes to this, but the, but the idea is um, it's not a deficit model in this sense that every culture prepares children to be become functional adults, but sometimes there's uh, profound disruptions in that, and the children don't get the full cultural treatment, the full cultural opportunities. And so schools are working with those children. They have certain kinds of characteristics that um, Feuerstein and other people have noted. And they, if children want to be successful uh, adults, they need an opportunity to address those deficits. So what are some examples? What can a school do if they've kind of identified maybe this child was lacking somehow um, and had this cultural disruption? What, what can a school do? Well, there's a few things um, that we're looking at. And One, is it school or a teacher? Can it? You know what I mean? Does it have to be a school-wide, or can it be a specific teacher? Well, both, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Uh, teachers, I think, need to take this on. Um, we do have children uh, with, that are struggling in this way. Um, one thing we need to work on is executive function skills, so helping students with things like focus and attention, um, impulsivity control, persevering. I think what people are talking about is grit now. Okay. Um, goal setting and organization. Oftentimes they really struggle with just those kind of areas. Uh, another issue could be motivation. 
they may seem unmotivated because they, they don't have any relationship to the subject matter. And so you have to scaffold that and begin to put in place uh, some processes by which people can begin to identify with that. I don't think someone just automatically comes to school uh, being you know, interested in science. Uh, you may get that from the broader culture, you may get that from your community or your family, but what if you don't get those things? Mm -hmm. And then you, uh, the teacher's gonna have to help the students see what's interesting about science, what's interesting about mathematics, etc. And I guess the third thing is uh, a broad area called thinking skills. Uh, this is involved things like categorization, comparing, contrasting, and um, labeling and precise use of language. So all of those things you've mentioned are very easy to weave throughout year long in any class one teaches. I mean, right. it's just the intentionality of it, I guess, might be need to be there more so than ever. Um, when you mentioned focus, I know this sounds silly, my son did Taekwondo forever, and sorry son if you're listening, and as little kids, one thing his instructor did, and I was always blown away, blown away by this, is he would make these five-year-olds just stand there at attention. And that was part of class. He was teaching focus and it, it was very intentional on his part, where he almost did it as a game, you know, appropriate for the kids. But I was always amazed how the kid that was running wild before class, he could make that child stand there for a minute, full attention, and then they'd shake it off. And, and it was that mm -hmm. intentional building. And um, so teachers can do that in, like, the organization, the categorization. You can build that into the lessons and what you're doing. So, yeah. and I think a lot of teachers listening to this podcast would think, uh, I think we're already doing that. Mm -hmm. I work a lot with my students. Yeah, of course. They're so disorganized. I help them get organized with their notebooks, et cetera. And I, th I think um, I'm sure that's absolutely true. What, what we're saying is these students need a particular focus, and they may need uh, particular out, um, services that uh, the school can provide beyond what the okay. classroom teacher can provide okay. um, to really give them a chance to develop these skills. One of the things um, we talk about in the book is this idea of double planing. The learning of two complex things at the same time is extremely difficult if you look at it from a cognitive perspective. We're not good at multitasking. And so if you ask a student to both learn, for example, um, thinking skills like uh, categorization or comparison, at the same time they're learning new content, that's what we call double planning. And so it's, it's just very difficult to do that. And a lot of times what they'll end up doing is focusing more on the new content which is what's going to be tested, what the teach, you know, teacher expects. But what the teacher is assuming is that the uh, thinking skills, of course, are going to be picked up. Mm -hmm. That's just, it's just how the class is organized. And um, if that were true, that'd be great. And if, if it is true with your students, then uh, ignore everything I've just said. Right. But if you have students who are really struggling, and I think part of the proof of the pudding of that is if students could just pick up these kind of fundamental uh, executive function and thinking skills just by being immersed in, in classrooms, then you would see students who are struggling when they're six and seven be stars by the time they're 14 and 15. Our um, experience and the testing data suggests uh, just the opposite, that students are struggling in elementary school are struggling in middle school, and they're also struggling in high school. And so they're not just picking up uh, these uh, kind of foundational skills, but those have to be taught. And, wow. Yeah. Okay. And the sad thing is those type of things are usually addressed if a student is identified as special ed. 
That's Correct. usually part of a plan. But if a student doesn't have that service, hasn't been identified, then it's kind of overlooked and the buck passes, like you right. said, all the way through. We, we just don't have, have a category for them. Yeah. You know, we don't have a test for them. And so one thing that people do talk a lot about is um, interrupted uh, formal education. And teachers are keeping track of that now. Schools are aware of, of gaps because they realize what it, impact it has yeah, on these, yeah. these students. They're not at grade level, but uh, they're, you know, at a certain age, it's very difficult to place students uh, more than a year or two um, younger than their uh, cohort. And so I, I think one thing that we're um, championing in this book is the idea of just awareness that cultural disruption does happen. If you notice students that are culturally disrupted um, and they're struggling academically, that may be the source of that struggle. They may be intellectually um, uh, uh, talented. They have uh, endless potential, but they need extra support simply because they've, they've missed out on some of the core socialization, which provides the foundation for other kind of academic right, work. Right, Very fascinating. The double planning, I'm just running through all these thoughts in my head. And uh, for example, when I'd have new teachers, well, even experienced teachers, but new teachers, one of the things I would always kindly get on them about is they expected students to multitask. It's like if you're going over something, don't make them take notes at the same moment. Let them absorb it and then go back and synthesize and put those thoughts down. And new teachers forget about that quite often, you know, the purity of right. the activity. And I, that was something that always was like on my list. Like, are you, and I never realized there was a term for that. So I'm going to use it, double planning. Yeah, we coined that term, so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <Yes>. you. <laughs> I'm stealing it. Um, so the next point you make in chapter three is that our students are coming from two distinct groupings of learners, and you call them literacy-oriented and non-literacy-oriented. So can you explain what the differences are and why this is important for teachers to understand? Yep. Um, one thing I want to make clear is that mm -hmm. uh, literacy-oriented and uh, non uh, literacy oriented are uh, you should think about that as a continuum so those terms are kind of the f the far right and far left of, of that continuum line and the, most of your students are going to fit somewhere along that continuum so um, so if you think about literacy oriented ability to independently use written texts to mediate learning for example that's one of the things we're, we're looking at so what does that mean so, for example, that they can independently use a dictionary to figure out meaning and spelling, that they can independently use a reference book, uh, an encyclopedia, uh, Wikipedia, whatever the source is, thesaurus. They, they, they know about these uh, uh, resources and they independently can access them when they need to solve uh, a problem, a linguistic problem, as, mm -hmm. as, um, in an academic program. Um, Non-literacy-oriented students uh, struggle with that, and they may not be aware that that these resources exist. They may not know how they are organized. Um, I remember one of my um, student teachers uh, was working with uh, Mexican-American students in Southern California, and she was teaching at a middle school. She left a uh, dictionary with a, a new student and told him to look up some words, write down the meanings. She, as many busy teachers do, she was circulating around the class. Finally, she came back to him, and he turned to her and said, teacher, this, this book has uh, alphabet. 
and he showed her that this book was organized around the alphabet. So he'd never seen a dictionary before and never used one and didn't realize that it was organized around uh, this basic principle of the alphabet. So that's what he got out of that lesson today. I'd say it's a pretty valuable lesson, mm -hmm. but it wasn't what she thought he was going to get out of. Right. She assumed he already knew this resource and uh, was going to use it to learn English. Not so fast. So this, oh boy, that's a huge, <laughs> huge point you just made. We make so many assumptions about right. what our students know and don't know. Um, taking all of this and trying to pull it into the world language edu educator classroom, and I realize your all's focus was kind of a broader one, so let's just bring this down to who our audience might be. What might this mean? What might educators need to do, world language educators do, who are teaching the language as the content? Okay, we're not talking immersion teachers. So what advice do you get, you know, can you give the world language educators? Well, one thing to think about is, um, you know, you noted in your um, introduction that world language now uh, is open to every student. Mm -hmm. And that means we're, we have students who have learning disabilities. And uh, as teachers, we have to work with, with that uh, population. And learning disabilities, of course, is a broad term that covers lots of, lots of issues. Um, and so we have to figure out how to work best with uh, the students who come into our classrooms. And I just want to note that um, teachers could be aware of a couple of other categories of, of students that may be um, struggling. One, uh, culturally disrupted students who may look like they have a learning disability, but they really don't. Um, and also non-literacy uh, oriented students. So they're now in a second language classroom, but they're not really, their community, their family, the student themselves are not really oriented toward uh, cultural practices that uh, this school and um, the teacher may assume is, is sort of uh, integrated or already part of the, the repertoire of the student. So uh, these two populations will have a different relationship to the second language and the way it's taught in uh, schools than students who are more literacy oriented and who are not culturally disrupted. And as you're saying that, I'm jotting down a note. It's, it's making me think, okay, so if you do have more diverse students in your room and you're really trying to make sure you're struggling learners learn at the same pace as everybody else and to the same level as everybody else. Um, I know there's a lot of um, questioning about this, but my rule of thumb was never teach a concept in one way. Shame on me, because I'm assuming every student in the class can get that concept through this one approach. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of questioning about this, but we've got our modalities and the different modalities you can teach to. So I, I strongly encourage listeners to always try to address something in multiple ways. So if you do have that kid who didn't understand how to use a dictionary and for some reason, and we don't encourage that, um, <laughs> for some reason you're doing that activity with your kids and they're not getting that, but then you do it another way, it helps them learn, oh, you know, I could have learned that. You, you see what I mean? It would help if you do the modalities. I think that's one thing a teacher can do. Um, Jean Marie, I was wondering as he's talking, and Francis, of course, you teach college as well, but are you seeing any of these challenges at the college level? 
Sure, we always see these challenges. One of the things I do, um, actually emerging out of my work with uh, various summer institutes on how to teach language better, is do a learning styles assessment for every class I teach, whether it's a language class or a folklore class or a linguistics class, precisely because I know that how I learn mm -hmm. is how I teach. Yeah. And I need to be aware of what my students are doing and how they process information. Um, it's not that I don't think the skills that we teach them in college are not important. They are important. Writing clear English or Russian um, are important skills to have. Nevertheless, how does each student get there? It's a different path. Mm -hmm. um, and if I'm only looking at the way I do it and the way it worked for me, I'm doing them a disservice. So I'm always trying to come up with, in every class, different ways to approach material to get them the skills that they need, including modeling how to write. Uh, for many years, I thought, they're just not being prepared, they're not interested, and I can't do anything else. I've done everything I can do. Well, in fact, it occurred to me uh, within the last few years, I'm not, because they may not have the overt skills. Francis's book was actually helpful along my processing of this as well. Um, not because they don't want them or they don't realize they're important. It's that no one ever taught them how to do the process. Right, right. So uh, I will assign them something. I usually give very open-ended assignments uh, so they can find their path and pick what's interesting to them. And then after they've turned theirs in, I will model how I answered the entire question and we will discuss how they matched or didn't match and why I made the choices I made. And then they're better prepared for the next time and the next time. And I will That's do good. that at the beginning, especially with freshmen, at the beginning for the first month and a half of class. Right. Um, we have a literacy series going in our district and um, we just did reading and so we're focusing on writing next. And one of the strategies is write with. And that's the term we're using to loosely you know, describe what you just said. So that is a strong literacy practice you can do with your kids. And, you know, if they don't know what's expected, how can they rise to your standard? So I just, I appreciate that immensely because it's nice to know this doesn't just, it's not a K through 12 problem. It, it extends. But, um, well, Francis, this was really interesting, and I encourage our listeners to uh, get a copy of the book online. you got to buy it online. And, um, just, you know, really give it a good read because I think it's valuable. And I was really excited when Jean Marie, you know, mentioned, and I was like, wow, he's right here in Kentucky. So just a reminder, it's Teaching with Memory in Mind, A Teacher's Guide to Memory and Learning. And if anyone has any more questions for you or, you know, wants to follow up with something, how can they get a hold of you? Sure. Um, I'm happy to provide my um, email address, francis.bailey at uky.edu. I'm director of the uh, Teaching English as a Second Language program. I'm happy to talk with people about teaching and learning issues. Thank you. Thank you again for being here. It's time for our pedagogical corner. And last podcast, we mentioned the blog, Senora Speedy, by Jennifer Kennedy. And this month, I want to highlight a blog and resource site. And I am going to slaughter this. I apologize, Spanish listeners and speakers. Musicuentos, somebody help me. Am I saying this right? Um, written by Sarah Elizabeth Cottrell. And this blog has entries that have advice and very practical help. 
um, on how to go about activities and lessons. Sarah Cottrell is um, very well known across the nation. Uh, she is a consultant and she's also one of the creators of LangChat, which is really popular on Twitter on Thursday nights. And I highly recommend you go to her website and see what she has. She also has a lot of materials on Teachers Pay Teachers. And she's just a strong proficiency base. She understands input and output theories and I highly recommend it. So www.musicuentos.com and give her musings a look. And now for the polyglotting news. Joining us with our KWA update is our president, Lucas Gravitt. Lucas, are you there? I'm there. Thanks, Laura. And greetings from the KWLA board. We've had a productive and busy past few months. Going back to November, we had a great showing at the Actful Convention and Expo in Boston, Massachusetts, where our very own Laura Roche Youngworth represented us well, competing for National Teacher of the Year. Jumping to January, we held our annual winter retreat in Lexington, where the board spent two days working on budgets, showcase, conference, and advocacy. KWLA will be well represented at the SCULT Conference on March 17th and 18th in Orlando, Florida. I will be there attending the leadership luncheon to represent KWLA. Ben McMain will present his session named Best of Kentucky from the KWLA conference. Dr. Brennan Bird will represent Kentucky as Outstanding Teacher of the Year as she competes for Sculpt Teacher of the Year. We are also glad to be sending an official representative to Central States Conference in March. Exciting things to come. As many of our listeners likely know, Kentucky is in the early stages of creating the Kentucky Seal of Biliteracy, which would provide incentives to students to become proficient in English and another language. KWLA is strongly supportive of this measure, and we are working with a variety of stakeholder organizations as well as our state senators and representatives to see this, this success. Our website, kwla.org, is currently under transition to a new, more user-friendly platform. The URL will not change, but it will take us until late February or early March to have the migration complete. During this time, no edits will be made to the current site. You can always keep up with our happenings on Facebook and Twitter, or you can email me at info at kwla.org. The state showcase, as many people probably know, uh, registration is live. We're expecting big crowds again this year. We're looking forward to welcoming several hundred students from all over the, all over the state to the campus of UK to show what they can do with languages. And finally, our call for proposals for the annual conference will open soon. The conference is being held on September 21st through 23rd at the Crown Plaza, Louisville Airport. Thank you so much. That is a lot of news. Thank you, Lucas. Jean Marie, what university news do you have to share? Here at UK, we're looking forward to a busy spring with three events focusing on language and culture. The first is our annual World Language Day on February 24th. Nearly 200 students of Spanish, French, Chinese, Japanese, Latin, and German will visit campus, attend classes, meet our students, faculty, and Education Abroad advisors. This is a great opportunity to show students what advanced study of languages and cultures can do for them. The deadline for this year's event has passed, but look for next year's invitation in 2018. As Lucas just said, on March 25th, we'll be hosting the KWLA Language Showcase. The students will not only be competing in the various categories featuring all language skills, but also have the opportunity to participate in many language lessons of languages they don't know or cultural events for 10 of the languages we teach at UK. Spanish, Chinese, Japanese, Classics, German, French, Italian, Arabic, and Russian. There will also be a showcase on professional opportunities using world languages. The registration deadline is March 3rd, as Lucas said, and you may find more information on the kwla.org uh, forward slash showcase site. 
From April 20th through 22nd, we will be hosting hundreds of specialists in language and culture for the KFLC Languages, Literatures, and Cultures Conference. As always, registration is free for school teachers from K through 12. There will be presentations on Arabic, Classics, East Asian, English as a Foreign Language, French, German, Hispanic Studies, Intercultural Studies, Jewish Studies, Linguistics, Portuguese, Russian, Second Language Acquisition, and Translation. This is a great professional development opportunity for teachers, and you can register free at kflc.as.uky.edu. Wonderful. Thank you, Jean-Marie. This wraps up our podcast on struggling learners and literacy. I wish to thank our guest, Francis Bailey, my co-host, Jean-Marie Rurier-Willoughby, and the wonderful staff at the University of Kentucky for providing the technology, location, and broadcasting of our podcast. This is Laura Roche-Youngworth for Language Talk KWLA saying au revoir and happy teaching. <laughs>